My first memory of my sister would be when she'd take me out for a walk up to my cousin's house or any other relatives when I was very young. I could remember her taking me by the hand and I'd be about three or four years of age. Happy memories, as far as I can remember, anyway. In the early 1950s, a then 17-year-old girl was involuntarily detained in a psychiatric hospital, or as they were then known, a lunatic asylum. Today, 58 years later, that girl is a 75-year-old woman and is still there. In fact, she never left. She is one of the many faces we refer to as the institutionalised. Things I did once are the last things I do know. Some people enter into the psychiatric system at an early part of their lives and some people have ended up institutionalised. I think that's just a simple fact and everybody agrees on that. Uh, some people become so used to living in an institution with their meals cooked, their clothes washed, their, basically their day is organised for them. And if that goes on over a long period of time, people can lose their sense of their own identity and their own initiation of plans for their day and what they're going to do with their time. And I think after a while it becomes almost impossible or very difficult for such a person to, to live outside of that institutional framework. Over half a century, over 50 years. Did anyone ever try to get me out of hospital? It's hard to imagine how any human being can legally end up locked away against their will based on the fact that they might be a danger to themselves or to others. This is what happened to Josie and is still happening today. I wouldn't like to go out nowhere. I'm so used to it there. I couldn't live in a house, no. Back in 1952, Josie was handed into the care and control of the state. My nerves were at me. I used to go out and meet people. You're actually eroding your own ability to live a life as a human being in normal human society. And that's what we call institutionalisation. And there's no doubt about it that the prime site of institutionalisation was psychiatric hospital. So very often, families are left with no other option. And so Josie involuntarily entered the psychiatric system. Once this happens, the right to treat the patient is given under the law to two consultant psychiatrists who can legally force medicate, including forced electric shock treatment, all with the intention of care and cure. Her brother Dave is now telling this story for the first time. But even now, the power of stigma and his fear of consequence has meant we've agreed to disguise their identities. I grew up in, uh, in the 1940s in the south of Ireland. Life was tough enough. I'm from a working-class family and it was hard enough, you know. Going to school was difficult, especially for me. I found it very hard because of the situation I was in. I was always very withdrawn and very frightened and afraid of life, really, because of the circumstances with my sister. She used to go away off on her own most of the time. She'd even stand by a corner there all day and people often came in and said, Josie is down by the corner. She's just standing on the corner for the last two hours, standing, just standing, you know. Not talking to anyone, not doing anything, not playing anything. 
Other girls and boys, her own age, and started mocking her as well in the street. If she did go out, so that made her worse again. So it gave her no chance at all, you know. Backed her completely into a corner. She became withdrawn and wouldn't leave the house. And then the time she'd leave the house, then she'd stay out till all hours. She had no concept of time or whatever. She just didn't behave normal for her age, you know. When she was about 16, she went off walking in town and she was followed by this particular man. I was raped once. I never saw him before the night he raped me. I didn't see him at all. All of a sudden, someone caught my hand and, and then he whispered to me after a while, come on out. I started to run. It was my fault and that I was waiting for it. He was nice afterwards and was sorry that he did it. I didn't care about it. I didn't think it through. And I heard them say on television once that if you committed rape, you get imprisonment. And the fellow that did it to me got away with it. I didn't tell anyone. I didn't hear about the rape or anything only until about three years ago. I never knew it. Grew up never knowing it. She just didn't behave normal for her age, you know. So eventually my mother and father decided to put Josie into a mental hospital. And she was 18 years of age at the time. That would have been in the early 1950s. I was in the house at the time, yes. And the guards came to take her away. I remember her saying, I don't want to go, I don't want to go. And the guards, you could tell by their attitude, by their manner, but... They knew it had to be done because they were being told to do it by my parents. They couldn't handle it anymore. I think she was put into the hospital, which sounds crazy, really, on the recommendation of a neighbour. A neighbour said, oh, she's not right, put her into the hospital. For me, being a child, she just went from the house. I didn't ask questions. I didn't know, whatever. But every time she ever came out... And I didn't like her being in the house because there was the stigma as regards mental illness even affecting me at that young age. I was saying she shouldn't be here. Take her away. I don't want, you know. I thought, like, I was ashamed that she was a mental patient in a hospital. What did the neighbours think? The, the way people were treated, I think, you know, you were just locked away and hidden away. It was the easiest way out. She's there now permanently for the last... from the early 50s till the present day. in everyone's life and for Josie the time of her teens was that moment if the circumstances surrounding her rape and her subsequent change in behaviour had been handled differently back then who's to know what may or may not have happened 
Back then, it was the era of the huge madhouses and all that that implied. By her mid-twenties, Josie's life of institutionalisation was already mapped out ahead of her. Her clothes, her hair, her speech, her whole appearance changed. She no longer walked, she shuffled. She began to evolve into the classic image of the institutionalised mad. Josie at times reacted with anger to her situation. She wanted to go home. She still had spirit back then. Schizophrenia. That was the term used for her illness. I didn't really know what the word meant when I first heard it. I found out what it was by reading after reading books and asking people about it. Nobody knew of the rape and nobody asked. Josie's radical change in behaviour was now explained. She was given a label for life. She was now a schizophrenic. Medication and treatment would cure or at least control. I suppose it's like having a split personality, I'd say, or multiple personality, or... That would be my interpretation of it, I think. Something like that. Sometimes you'd meet the real Josie and sometimes you wouldn't. And you could see the change. She was in and out of the hospital. She'd be out for a couple of weeks or a couple of months and she'd be back in again, you know. Obviously, the reason she'd go back in again is because her behaviour wasn't acceptable. In the first ten years of Josie's incarceration, she would occasionally come home. But as she kept secret the rape, her family became tired of her exhausting mood swings. And for Josie, the challenge of life was taken. Her journey into permanent institutionalization, based on her diagnosis, began, and the door remained shut. Dr. Pat Bracken is a consultant psychiatrist and clinical director of the West Cork Mental Health Service. No, there is no blood test to say whether someone is dangerous or not. There is no scan or other medical tests that you can do either to confirm a diagnosis or to predict someone's behaviour in the future. The judgment about whether someone should be detained in hospital under the current Act comes down to very clearly questions of risk and potential risk, uh, either to themselves, the person themselves, or to other people. You inform yourself as much as you can about the circumstances, the current circumstances of the person, their past history. You get information from different sources um, and you make a judgment on the basis of all those um, uh, bits of evidence. They can be from, from relatives, they can be from other staff, they can be from the guardee, they can be from other uh, professionals such as social workers or GPs or others about what the person has been doing, how they've been behaving, uh, what their past history has been in terms of behaviour, etc. So you pull all of that together, you do that in conjunction with other professionals, uh, and you make a decision. Um, whether that's uh, a medical decision or you want to call it something else, I, I don't know, but it's, that's, that's, it's, a, it's a legally binding decision, so you, you, know, you don't make it lightly. Um, but um, there is no simple test that can tell you, yes, this is the right route to go or the wrong route to go. 
and and sometimes it's very difficult to know what is the best thing to do. Before, when she went in first, you you could see she was a lovely girl, looked quite normal, but eventually, then you could tell by looking at her that she was a mental patient, by looking at her alone, not well kept, her hair just thrown down any way at all. She never looked after herself, so it didn't seem to matter to her at all. Her appearance didn't matter, you know. Meeting Josie today is a sad sight. Her words are barely understandable. She has no flow of conversation. We had to hire an actress to speak her words. She is no longer angry. She has learned. She is now compliant. Back in the 50s and 60s, that wasn't always the case. I remember it was an awful place they brought me to. It's closed down now. But the treatment... I was laughing. He said, you won't be laughing after it. After all, the tubes inside me, up my nose and down through my stomach. I was roaring. The pain was terrible. And I wasn't hungry at all. I didn't want them to do it again, but they did. I don't like oranges at all. I used to love oranges. But I wouldn't touch them, no. I hate oranges. Josie's circumstances left a terrible mark on her family, particularly her younger brother, Dave. At times they'd be arguing in the house. Um, she was often a great help around the house with my mother doing cooking and everything. Like She was very good, you know. I thought at times that she was going to be all right. But there were times when I could be in the bed and... I could hear all the screaming and my father would have to go out walking the streets till all hours looking for her. And eventually when he'd get her home he'd he'd go out to her and she'd start shouting and screaming and that's what I can remember. Tis a frightening way for a young person, young, well, I wasn't much more than a child at the time, to go to sleep putting thoughts in your head, screaming and you wake up frightened obviously. When there's someone mentally sick in your family, you think, am I going to go that way as well? I'm certainly very aware of the risks of hospitalising someone. Most psychiatrists would take that very seriously, that when you are balancing risks and, and, and making a judgment about whether someone should be detained or not. Bringing someone into hospital isn't ever a completely benign operation. What I mean by that is that in the, in the hospital setting, when someone enters the door of the hospital, they are automatically in a kind of socially inferior position as the patient. You are, you know, you're rendering someone passive, even if someone is admitted on a voluntary basis. That can happen. But if you're detaining someone, that's very much part of the process. So I would be very aware uh, when I'm trying to decide what's the best thing to do, what's the safest thing to do for someone. And I'm sure that we often get it wrong, you know, and sometimes we don't detain people when perhaps we should have, and sometimes we do detain people when it's possibly not the best thing for them. Um, that's what makes the business very difficult uh, and very, very uh, 
um, emotionally draining in some ways because it's it's a very major decision to make about someone's life to take their liberty from them. Well, mentally, she didn't get any better during her 20s. You know, she got worse of anything. I mean, when she went in first, there was very little wrong with her. It could have been put right with the right people to sit down and talk to then, but the biggest mistake made was putting her in there in the first place. She was put in with patients or people that were a lot worse than her. And she was only a young girl. I mean, some of them were elderly people and they were very, very badly... I mean, what has to happen in a situation then is you have to become one of them. You're bound to, like... You could put a sane person in with mental people like that and eventually she'll think she's one of them or he, you know. It doesn't help them anyway, you know... 400 psychiatric patients received electroconvulsive therapy treatments during 2008 and 43 patients were legally declared unable or unwilling and were forced to take 300 electric shock treatments. In the late 1950s, Josie found herself in a similar position. I'm sorry I took it when I used to get it and when I woke up under it and I couldn't move and I couldn't breathe... I told the male nurse that it was an awful thing to do to me. Three times, I think. Wasn't it an awful thing to happen? To wake up under it. And I couldn't move. I couldn't breathe. You said you were shock, didn't you? Shock? I got no shock. I woke up under it. I couldn't move and I couldn't breathe. Early twenties. I forget now. Josie never had the opportunity to experience life as a wife, a mother, a woman. She would go on to spend the entire years of her 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s and halfway through her 70s, institutionalised. These are decades of time, of multiple lives lived, 58 years in total until today. And whatever the circumstances, this can't be a solution. My mother used to go to see her nearly every day, every second day anyhow. I think I went on a few occasions with my mother, but I didn't go visit her regular until later, yes. I thought I was feeling guilty over not wanting her before, and but then as I got older and realised what it was all about and... I had to get to know her all over again, like she was a stranger to me then. But I've been visiting her now for the last 30, 40 years or whatever. I'd say my father would go on the odd occasion, all right. It isn't that my father didn't like her or anything that way. It was just that he was out working all day, as was. It was something that wasn't really spoken about that much in the family, you know. My mother used to have to walk up to visit Josie... And she did that almost daily for 30 years. And, you know, 
Her legs were getting bad at the time, you know. She'd have to walk up to the hospital and walk back. I'd say Josie's health had a big effect on her, yes. It must have been dragging her down, really, you know. It had to. Because she was a very good mother, exceptionally good, you know. Really good. And she did everything she could. But things just didn't work out, you know. My first visit, first of all, I thought it was a very strange place. It reminded me of something you'd see in a film. Charles Dickens comes to mind. But the building inside and out, very, very way behind the times, you know. But I'd sit down and have a chat with her and whatever and bring her in chocolates and things like that and cigarettes and, you know. As I say, I often went into some of the wards around the hospital and you'd see all the markings on the walls. Initials scrope on the wall and all over the floor, especially near the windows. You'd see cigarette butts, all black marks along the ground, all by the windows, that they'd been there over the years and on the walls as well. I can imagine people sitting on the windowsill just locked in their room and all they ever did was smoke and holding cigarettes and the windowsill, I think. It was very sad to see it, really. You know, I was just thinking, the people that have spent their whole life in there, in that particular room, you know, both men and women. I look out the window at cars and trees. I've more freedom now. I like smoking. Smoking makes me happy. Didn't he pick a very bad day to take me out? Above I have a room to myself and all. We may have improved some of the buildings, hung curtains, but people still look out windows smoking. Even today, the normality of madness is misunderstood and feared. Sometimes once you had been in a psychiatric hospital, the stigma of that meant that living outside of the hospital wasn't particularly comfortable for a lot of people. And that still is the case. Uh, a lot of people will say that the stigma that goes with being uh, a recipient of psychiatric services is actually a greater burden than the problem that led them to seek psychiatric help in the first place. I think you should rally around a person more if they're mentally sick than you should of any other illness. If a person has a broken leg, that'll mend in time, but if you're mentally sick, it's then you need someone because your confidence is obviously at a low. You're really down, so it is it's then you need someone, someone to put a hand around you and just give you a hug and say you'll be OK. That could be as good as any medicine, but what actually happens is the opposite effect, and people push you away, and that makes you worse. I wouldn't say anyone outside the family would ever have went to visit Josie, you know, because they'd have been afraid of being, first of all, to be seen going into the hospital. Most people wouldn't even go in and visit their own, never mind visit someone else's, ne never mind visit a friend. It has changed slightly, but not enough, you know. I think that's still there today. Last year, 2,024 people were involuntarily detained. People who are not criminals, yet can be legally locked away and force-treated for 21 days on the agreed opinion of two consultant psychiatrists. 
They then go before a mental health commission tribunal where the person is expected to mount a defence irrespective of whether they've been sedated by legal force or not. These men, women and children have no access to bail and their families have no legal right to visit them or attend tribunals. 91% continue to be held against their will as tribunal findings upheld psychiatric opinion that they might be a danger to themselves or others. But for Josie, all of this is immaterial. I was on parole. Well, not parole. Um, what, what do you call it? Getting out and back again by yourself. I was nearly knocked down outside. Outside? It was so long since I was outside. There's hardly any cars on the road when I was 18. And when I was older, there was lots of cars on the road and I was nearly knocked down. Look at the rain. Look out. Clearly there are some people, due to madness or distress, are in a mental state at certain times in their life when they present a risk, serious risk to themselves or to other people. And there's a decision there for society as to how to handle people in those situations. I think psychiatry is one part of a whole societal reaction to madness and distress. My own feeling as uh, what I would call a critical psychiatrist is that psychiatry hasn't played a very positive role in the past and I think we have to radically re-examine our assumptions and our approach if we're going to have a more positive role to play. I mean, I would point out that there are other people involved in the decision to detain someone, but the way the current act is framed, the consultant psychiatrist in the institution is the main player in terms of making decisions about whether to detain someone, how long they should be in hospital, what treatment they would have, etc. I think the phrase, the consultant psychiatrist shall decide, is in nearly every second paragraph in the act, uh, so it's very clearly a very medical orientated uh, system of detention. My own feeling is that uh, that's wrong. I take them all in the morning, small ones and, and big ones, different colours. There's a lot in the morning. I get up and I have my breakfast. And after that, I go down to the smoking room. I only smoke alone. I used to love reading years ago when I was young. I used to read a lot. I don't like reading no at all. I hate reading. I don't read anything. I watch television and the wireless. Songs on the wireless. Sometimes. I was in Limerick and Clare and Tipperary and Limerick. Kerry and Bantry. I used to go to all them places. It was only for a day, 
you know, an outing. Cause an outing's above, no? And you know, and again, and home again from the hospital. When families become tired of madness, they are faced with the huge moral dilemma of handing over control of their loved ones to psychiatry. Why did nobody ask Josie what was wrong with her when she could still answer that question? Is anyone really asking the Josies of today? Is it time to ease this burden from psychiatry? After all, Josie may have been part of her problem, but she was never part of her solution. Well, the way I look at it, I think, is it's Josie who put herself in that situation, like, by behaving the way she behaved. So, therefore, I mean, she wasn't just singled out. Is it time to go back to when we differentiated between the body and the spirit, between the technical and the human? We have learned to fix broken bodies. We have yet to learn to fix broken spirits. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think we need to have a debate about this as a, as a society. People are making decisions assumed to be in the patient's best interest and in the interests of the wider society as a sort of preventative act so that you're taking away someone's liberty on the basis of things that they have said or done which leads you to believe that they're mentally unstable and in a position where they present a risk to themselves or others and you are taking away their liberty before they've committed any kind of, you know, they haven't committed any crime, you're right. But I would throw it back to you that um, I think a lot of psychiatrists in this part of the world in, in particular feel this whole thing as one of the most difficult parts of their job, that if you use the Mental Health Act to detain people, you're damned, if you like, by patient groups and advocates. But if you don't detain someone who then goes on to commit a crime, the wider public and in particular the media come back at you as a failure of the mental health system. And often the person that's in the target of that public interest and that public hostility is the psychiatrist. She's in the best place she can be. When you compare it with the place she was in first, which was really an old-fashioned type of place. But in this place, now it was a bit more modern, and I'd say she has her own bedroom, and she can come and go where she pleases, and she'll go for a walk around the grounds or whatever. There's no problem, but it isn't a hotel by any means, but the staff are very kind to her. Most of them give her things and bits of jewellery and things like that. It makes her happy. The last five or ten years... I've been the happiest years of her life, I'd say. But she's become institutionalised now, and there's no way she'd ever adjust to the outside world. I'd imagine it would have taken a long while to become institutionalised. I'd say because at first, for the first five, ten years, or maybe twenty years even, you're fighting it. You don't want to be here. And you refuse the food, and you refuse this and that. And But eventually you accept it and become... I suppose it's like being a prisoner in jail. When he goes in first, he finds it hard and eventually he gets into a routine and he adjusts to it. It's the same with a mental patient. Everyone is afraid of madness. We're afraid of becoming mad. Any of us could be Josie or her family. And if we refuse to change the existing legal system, 
if we continue to use the power we have granted to that very system to hide behind, the silence and stigma will continue. Having the power to detain people under the Mental Health Act, believe me, is a double-edged sword. Because with that power goes the responsibility of that. Um, And it's not a very comfortable position for any doctor to be in. For the last couple of hundred years, society has given responsibility for dealing with those people, those situations, and making decisions about them into the hands of the medical profession. And it must be said, the medical profession fought for the power to have that responsibility. I'm not convinced, as a doctor, as a trained psychiatrist, I'm not convinced that we have the sort of knowledge base and research base that allows us to predict what people are going to do or not do. And I'm not sure that we're necessarily the best people to be making decisions about detention or otherwise. And I would really like to see a situation where the medical profession were less centrally involved in that. We should be involved to some extent. We have things to offer people. We have uh, a role to play. But I would like to see us playing that role alongside other people in the field. I think the power that is invested in psychiatry is actually out of kilter with the level, the knowledge base that we can draw upon to actually inform those decisions. We have mass graves across the country still in use, where we bury our forgotten institutionalised in unmarked graves. I have buried a few. Nobody at the graveside. Try to bury an institutionalised son next to his previously institutionalised mother in the same plot. But I failed. Nobody knew where she lay in the mass grave. Just that she was in there, that much of the record had been kept. I think Josie's life was a wasted life, yes, Completely wasted, yes. Spending your whole lifetime in an institution is, as she often said to me, she said, I I didn't murder anyone, she'd say. I'm looking at news there at night on television. This man got ten years for murder. Some fella, like, ten years, twelve years and so on. She'd say, I'm in here for the last fifty-odd years and I never murdered anyone. What did I do to deserve this? In my own profession, psychiatry has become obsessed with classification systems, and every year we get new categories of this, that, and the other. We get operationalized definitions. You can call this person that and the other person that. We've become obsessed with the notion that we can come up with technical interventions, whether it's a drug or a particular type of psychotherapy. We've, we've become obsessed with that idea that mental health problems are primarily technical problems that call out for technical solutions. And to the extent that psychiatry has been part of that, I think it's been part of the problem. But I think it's a much more general problem. I think we as a society, as a culture, have tried to do that. Mental health problems are primarily, primarily human problems that require understanding, caring, respect. And I think we've got that 
wrong, that we've, we've got that relationship wrong. Traditionally, in our thinking about mental health, we've prioritised the technical. We've seen the issue when someone becomes sad, they're not sleeping, they're not going to school, etc. The first thing we have to do is get a diagnosis, bring them to a doctor. Um, and I think when you raise the question of love, I think that's a very profound question. What we need very often in states of madness, what we need very often in states of depression and despair, of alienation, is love, is reaching out, is care in its deepest, most human part. And we need that from other people. We don't necessarily, I don't think you can blame doctors for that or nurses for it. We need it from those around us. We need it from our friends. We need that sense of inclusiveness. We need to generate, if you like, a society that doesn't fear madness, that doesn't fear depression, doesn't fear alienation, but actually sees these as part of the human condition, not as problems to be handed over to a hospital, to a clinic, to a professional of one sort or another. Every one of you knows somebody with the normality of madness. Last year, just over 22,000 people were admitted into psychiatric care. Will we be retelling this story in 58 years' time? I visit young Josies today. I see them, smoking and staring out of windows. Come and visit with me. They are held in public hospitals, not prisons. Let them know you care. Josie appears to be living in the past. She's just different, you know. She wasn't that bad that she should have been locked up for all of her life. And I certainly wouldn't like to see it happen to any girl today. I think really, you know, at this stage, I'm the only one she really... She relies on me. I'll do everything I can for her. She asks me now a lot about the afterlife. She keeps asking me, is there... And I'd say there is and whatever, but at times when I go down, if things are going against her, I'd often look out of the window and there see her rosary bead out torn to shreds out on the patio. And I've seen holy pictures torn to bits, obviously because she'd be getting annoyed with the person above, I suppose, saying, why, why did you do this to me? About me future? I don't know. I've not no only waiting to die. I'm scared to dying. I'll die someday, I suppose. Above. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.